go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about uh, where we're going. Um, next Sunday morning, I will preach um, a special message, uh, not from Romans 8, uh, on the case for pastoral training and why go train pastors in another country. Why do we send money from our church budget to Southern Seminary and Southeastern Seminary? Why do we occasionally give uh, young learning pastors at Southeastern opportunities to practice on us on Sunday nights from time to time? Uh, Why be involved in that work and why should it be important to us? We're going to talk about that next Sunday morning. Next Sunday night, we'll continue in Romans 8, and I am excited about both what we're going to talk about tonight and next week, and I'm excited about the trip to Romania. I am very excited about when I get back from Romania, because um, that's when we're going to be in some of those verses. It's, it's the end of Romans 8, and the end of Romans 8 is, uh, in my opinion, the best of Romans 8. And I've already been living in those verses for the last several weeks, and I have a lot inside of me that I am ready to share, a lot now on paper that I'm ready to preach, and, um, and it's, it's going to be great, not because of anything in me, but because it's just a great part of the Bible. Um, it's just a great portion of Scripture. So I'm especially looking to uh, the month of May and June and what we're going to see there as we finish uh, Romans chapter 8 together as a church family. Well, tonight we come to the great golden chain. The great golden chain. Romans eight twenty nine through 30. These two verses, um, they make up one of the most helpful and one of the most important passages perhaps in the entire Bible. And so I want to begin reading in verse 26. I'm going to begin reading verse 26, but note especially verses 29 and 30, this great golden chain. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul is speaking to the Christians in Rome. And already, many of them have suffered. And the suffering is about to get worse. Emperor Nero is now in power. In verse 18, Paul already spoke about the sufferings of this present time. And in verses 31 through 36, Paul was going to speak of much more suffering. He seems to picture a day when these Christians that are receiving this letter might have to stand trial, being charged and convicted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And some of them perhaps will die. 
He reminds them in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Paul was telling these brothers and sisters in Christ that even if they are charged by a Roman court, the charge won't stick. God is the one who declares righteousness. God's court is the supreme court. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Sure, you might be condemned by a Roman court. But remember that Jesus died and rose again, and so will you, victorious by faith. Indeed, not even death can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is not writing this letter to Christians who are living comfortably and happily. This is a letter to Christians who are suffering presently and are about to see that suffering intensify. As if persecution wasn't enough, these Christians had to battle their own flesh. They were battling the allurements of the world. They were battling spiritual forces against them. They were like us, for those are things that we have to battle each day. And so God is working through Paul to comfort and to encourage these people. In verse 28, Paul told them that all things are working for their good. Yes, even these trials and these tribulations, even these sufferings that you're experiencing and are about to experience Roman Christians, even these will ultimately prove to be for your good. Now, in verses 29 and 30, Paul reminds us what God has done and what God will do for us. Paul is helping us to see ourselves in light of our salvation. Verses 29 through 30 are what have been called the golden chain of salvation. So let me begin by making three general observations about this chain, and then we'll look at each of the unbreakable links. So first, three notes about this golden chain of salvation. Number one, note that this chain is a teleological chain. So everybody say, teleological. Say it again. One more time. All right, say it three times, and it's yours for life. So it's yours for life. Teleological. Um, It's just a fancy word that means looking towards the end. Something is teleological when it's focused on the end, on the finish line. The most important word of this chain is the last word, glorified. The whole point of this chain is to show you as a Christian that this is your God-appointed end. You will be glorified. You see, verses 29 through 30 support verse 28. Paul has just said this absolutely astounding thing. Dear Christian, all things work for your good. And now he's going to support what he just said by showing what he means. Does everybody see that word for at the beginning of verse 29? Right? All things work together for good. For those of you who love God and are called according to his purpose. For... Those whom God foreknew, he predestined, and those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he calls, he justifies, and those whom he justified, he glorified. Mount Hermon, this chain would not support verse 28 if it ended with the word justified. 
If justification was the last link of this chain, it would not really hold up the great truth that Paul was trying to get across, namely that God is working all for our good. These Christians were suffering right then, right there, and many of us are suffering right here, right now. Perhaps one of these Christians was about to be taken to the Colosseum to be thrown to the lions. Simply telling that Christian that he is now righteous in the sight of God does not go far enough. The Christian wants to know what about the lions? What about the bloody death that I am about to experience? You see, this chain works because it tells the Christian the end of the story. Yes, you are suffering, but all things work for your good because at the end of it all, you will be glorified. At the end of it all, whatever God brings into your life, you are going to stand with perfected body and soul on a new earth in the presence of your Savior. That's the point. Paul is looking into his infallible crystal ball called the revealed truth of God, and he says to us, I know your future. The God who has done already done all of these wonderful things for you, he foreknew you, he predestined you, he called you, he justified you, that God who did all that for you, let me tell you your future, he's going to glorify you. In the end, all things will have worked for your good because all things will have led to your glorification. Christians in this room, hear this. You might be experiencing tough health issues right now. You may have cancer in your body. You may be experiencing loneliness or a terrible struggle in your relationships or in your finances or in some other area of your life. And you may be wondering, Justin, how in the world can you say that this is working for my good? Well, brother and sister, I can say it and I can believe it because I know that everything you're going through right now as a believer in Jesus is being worked by God to bring you to the day of your glorification. Your cancer is not the end of your story. Your loneliness is not the end of your story. Your broken heart or your poverty is not the end of your story. You will experience the fullness of joy promised by God to those who love Him. You are going to be glorified. That is the eternal, never-ending end of your story. You will live happily ever after as a holy person with your God. These two verses are meant to encourage you. They are meant to help you take heart in the midst of trouble. Second, note that the emphasis in this chain is on God and His actions. The emphasis in this chain is on God and His actions. Our security and our encouragement do not come from what we have done. Rather, our security and our encouragement come from what God has done and from what God will do. With each link of the chain, we find that God is the active subject and we are the passive object. Paul does not even put sanctification into this chain. Did you notice that? His focus isn't on anything that actually includes our activity. 
His focus is solely on what God has done and will do according to his good pleasure, completely apart from us. He foreknew us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. He will glorify us. The emphasis is on God. Our security is in our God. Our safety is in our God. He has set his love on his people, and he will not lose one of them. They are his, and he is theirs, and it shall be that way forever. He has done all the work. They will get all the blessing, and to him will belong the glory forever and forever. And then third, third, just to be clear, the purpose of this chain is to encourage us in our God-given security. The purpose of this chain is to encourage us in our God-given security. It is called the unbreakable chain for a reason. Who can separate one link of this chain from the others? Who can interfere with what God has designed here. Satan cannot separate these links. Even you, with your heart that is prone to wonder, cannot separate these links. God has secured you in the bonds of a golden chain of grace. And if you are a believer on Christ right now, then you will be God's forever and ever. Amen. Friends, if you believe that a Christian can truly lose his or her salvation, you must deal with Romans 8, 29-30. If you really believe that a person can have a true, God-given, justifying faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and then not be glorified on the last day, you have to show how those two links can be broken apart. And if you find a way that they can be broken apart, you undermine the very truth that God is teaching here. In fact, I don't know of another passage of Scripture that teaches more clearly and more certainly the doctrine of eternal security than this passage right here. Because this passage says that if you have been given true, justifying faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can never, ever, 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 ever lose your salvation. Those whom He justified... He also glorified. It's an unbreakable chain. And it means that you as a Christian are safe forever. Now, tonight we're going to look at the first link of this chain. And the first link is the foreknowledge of God. Does everybody see that in verse 29? Those whom He foreknew, God foreknew His people Christians have been foreknown by God. What does that mean? How would you answer that question? What does it mean to be foreknown by God? Well, first of all, let me say that it does not mean, it does not mean what Eugene Peterson says it means in the message. I know there are a lot of Christians who like to use the message as their Bible of choice. But the message is not a Bible. It is one man's paraphrase of the Bible. It is a very, very loose paraphrase. And frankly, on verses like this, as much as I do respect Eugene Peterson, and he has written much that is helpful, 
But particularly on these two verses, he just makes mush of what they really mean. Here is how he in the message renders verse 29. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. Now friends, that does not say the same thing as Romans 8 verse 29. The foreknowledge of God does not simply mean that God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. Our verse does not say that God foreknew what he was doing. Our verse says God foreknew people. Do you see the difference? This is not a knowing what God is doing. Now, do we believe that God knew what he was doing from the very beginning? Absolutely. But our verse says he foreknew people. That they are the objects of his foreknowledge, not his own actions. So seeing that it is people that God has foreknown, what does this verse actually mean? Well, we can break up what Christians have said about this throughout the centuries in three proposals. Three proposals of what it means for people to be foreknown by God. Number one, there is the Arminian proposal. An Arminian is not someone from the country of Armenia. That's spelled differently, an E instead of an I. An Arminian is someone who holds to the teachings of a man from the late 1500s whose name was Jacob Arminius. And he and his followers suggested this, that God's foreknowing people means God looked into the future to see which people would voluntarily believe the gospel and come to him And these are the ones that God predestined to be saved. So according to them, what Romans 8.29 is saying is this. Those whom God foreknew, in the sense that he looked to the future, saw whether or not they would choose him, and saw the ones that would choose him, those people he predestined to eternal life. And so for the Arminian, foreknowledge is really foresight. It is God looking into the future. The Arminian view has become more and more prominent. It was the dominant view of the last century. It was certainly the view that I grew up believing and being taught. I think it's still the most common view today. I do think it's beginning to wane. The Living Bible is an earlier paraphrase than the message. And I think the Living Bible is an even better paraphrase than the message But it's still a paraphrase, and it's an Arminian paraphrase. So listen to how the Living Bible renders Romans 8, 29. It says, For from the very beginning, God decided that those who come to him, and all along he knew who would, should become like his son. So that's the Arminian understanding of this passage. It's it's the foreknowledge of God is God foreseeing who will choose I think you know that I don't hold to this view and I think there's three reasons why it doesn't hold up so let me share them with you quickly number one the verse says God foreknew people not actions it says God foreknew people it does not say God foreknew who would come to him it doesn't say that he foreknew who would believe it simply says he foreknew people 
Number two, if God did look into the future from eternity past to see who would come to him on their own free will and believe, how many people would God have foreknown? And the answer is zero. The Bible knows nothing of someone coming to God on their own. John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Faith, which is how we come to God, is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so you see, if foreknowledge means what the Arminian says it means, that God looks in the future to see who will freely choose him, well, God doesn't foresee anybody, and therefore nobody is predestined, and therefore nobody is called, and thereby nobody is justified, and nobody is glorified. And these verses really have no sense. Third, if the Arminian view is correct, and if somehow someone could come to God on their own free will, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, well, then that would mean that the decisive work in their salvation had been done by them and not by God. If the first part of the chain, if the very first link of the chain of your salvation is that God looks into the future to see what you do, and it's your choosing him that makes the difference in whether or not you're foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, then who's doing the decisive work? Yes, God's doing the foreknowing, predestining, calling, justifying, glorifying, but it all began with him looking to see your choice which means that you are the one that made it happen. And you get to at least share in the glory for your salvation. The Bible has no place for that. Salvation, Jonah said, is of the Lord. God does not share his glory with another. God gets all the glory for our salvation because he does all the work. Even our believing on Jesus is his work. The Arminians make our entire salvation rest on our decision, our will, our choosing. I want you to listen carefully to John 1, beginning in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To which the Arminian says, see... To those who received him, to those who believed, he gave the right to be children of God. They believed, see? But that's not the whole passage. Hear the next verse. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, if you've received Christ... If you've believed Christ, it was because you were born again, not of the will of man, not of the will of the flesh. You were born of God, and that's how you came to believe. Romans 9, beginning in verse 15, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul then says, so you see, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul says your salvation does not depend on human will or exertion, not what you choose nor what you do, but on God who shows mercy. 
So the Arminian view, though the most popular view, is not a biblical view. And frankly, it's deadly to your faith if you hold to it. Well, second, there is the Molinist proposal. So everybody say the word Molinist. Molinist. Say it again, Molinist. Molinist. One more time. Okay, Uh, Molinist, it's M-O-L-I-N-I-S-T, Molinist. And guess what? This view is named after another man that lived in the 1500s. This man was a Roman Catholic, a Jesuit, and his name was Louis de Molina. And that's where the word Molinism or Molinist comes from. Now, normally, I would not even mention this view except that as Arminianism is beginning to lose its sway in conservative Christian churches today, Molinism is beginning to pick up steam. Um, As we'll talk about next week, what happens in the classroom in Wake Forest at Southeastern Seminary today fills the pulpits tomorrow. And Molinism is already there and other places And it wouldn't surprise me to see it beginning to pop up more and more in churches. And therefore, it is likely something that in the next decade or two, we will see more of. And so I want you to hear it from me first, so that you can understand what this view is and come to grips with it. This view, like the Arminian view, is held by men that believe the gospel. Okay, Christians hold to these views. I'm not saying you can hold these things, and you can't be a Christian if you hold to my view. Can't be a Christian if you don't hold to my view. What I'm saying is, Christians hold to these views. Godly people hold to these views, but I do think that they are incorrect. The Molinist view is held by one of the greatest apologists of our day, a guy named William Lane Craig. Uh, Ken Keithley, who teaches future pastors and missionaries at Southeastern, is an advocate of this Molinist perspective. Um, so let me, let me let you hear it. Uh, this is from William Lane Craig. This is his explanation of Molinism in his own words. So you listen to this. William Lane Craig says, God has so ordered the world that all those who never hear the gospel and are lost are people who would not have embraced the gospel and been saved even if they had heard it. Not all persons who would believe the gospel if they heard it are born at a time and place where they do hear it. For it's possible that some of the unevangelized do respond positively to God's general revelation in nature and conscience, and so are saved through the atoning death of Christ without having a conscious knowledge of Christ. My concern is with the unevangelized, who reject God's general revelation and are damned, but who would have accepted the gospel if they had heard it. The proposal is that it's possible in the providence of God that there are no such people. That God is too loving to allow anyone to be damned through the historical and geographical accidents of his birth. So here's what the Molinist teaches. Um, God's knowledge includes what they call middle knowledge. This has nothing to do with Middle Earth. Don't picture hobbits and rings of power. That's not what's at view here. This middle knowledge means that God knows what different people would do in different situations. God knows what you would do freely, on your own free will, if you were placed here. And He knows what you would do if He placed you over 
here. He knows what, would, what you would do if you were born in this century. He knows what you would do if you were born in that century. He knows what you would do if you were born in this context. He knows what you would do if you were born in that context. God knows that there are certain people that he can place in a land and a time where they will never hear the gospel, but they're going to see his glory in creation, and they're going to believe on him and be saved. This is the Molinist view. So God takes many of these people who are going to be saved just through general revelation, just by looking at creation and seeing God's power, and he places them in places where the gospel is never going to reach so that they can be saved without the gospel through creation. Then there are these other people who even if God calls them to be born in a family that goes to church every week, if God puts them in a family where they're going to hear the word of God all the time and they're going to be prayed for and they're going to be pleaded with to believe, these people are still not going to believe. Even though they could have heard the gospel a million times, they will never believe. So God chooses to put many of these people in places where they'll never hear the gospel. Because it doesn't matter, you see. They weren't going to believe anyway. But then God knows that there are some people who will believe, but only if they hear the gospel. And he places every one of them in places and contexts where they will certainly hear the gospel and be saved. All right, so that's the Molinist view. Men are saved, and women are saved, by how they respond to God freely of their own free wills. And God foreknows who he needs to place where to make sure the maximum number of people are saved. It's a complicated view. And the whole point of the, of the view is to try and reconcile the free will of man with God's sovereignty over salvation. In my estimation, I think it's a view that utterly fails. Number one, the Bible nowhere speaks of anyone being saved through what they see of God in creation. It is only through the gospel that any of us will be saved The reason we must be urgent in getting the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth is that we believe there is no salvation apart from it. Those people who see the glory of God in the sun and the sky, but never hear about Jesus and never hear about the cross, well, they do not have all that they need to be saved. We can learn enough from general revelation to condemn us. We cannot learn enough from general revelation to save us. We must have somebody come and preach the gospel to us. How will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless someone preaches? How will they preach unless they are sent? Right? Number two, the Molinist view still makes man the primary agent in salvation. Just like the Arminian view, the Molinist view still makes the decisive work of salvation the work of the person. God looks to see who will freely choose to believe on him where, and he puts people in those situations where they will freely choose to believe on him so that he can now predestine, call, justify, glorify. We start the dominoes falling, and then he completes the work. The Bible just doesn't allow us to speak this way. We do not do the decisive work in our salvation. Well, finally, number three, the Molinist view assumes that some people are less dead in sin than others. The Molinist view that some, says that some people, 
even in the best circumstances, will never believe on their own, but that other people in other circumstances will believe on their own. That some people are not as dead to God as other people. Uh, it makes me think of The Princess Bride. Some of you have seen that movie, and there's, you know, mostly dead. Well, he's mostly dead. He's not all the way dead. He's mostly dead. Well, the Molinist view has this idea of people, different groups of people being more or less dead to God than others. The Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible says we all have hearts of stone by nature. And it doesn't matter what circumstances God puts you in, where you're born, when you're born, if the Holy Spirit of God does not come upon you and give you life, you will not be saved. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. He didn't say, Nicodemus, which kind of person are you? Or your group too, you must be born again. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. So the third and final proposal is the, the view certainly that I hold. Uh, it's the Reformed proposal, the Calvinist proposal, named after another man in the 1500s, John Calvin. But I would certainly argue that it's the biblical proposal, and that's why we believe it. We believe it because we find it in the pages of the Bible. This view says this. Being the foreknowledge of God is God setting his special love upon a group of people from the foundations of the world. That the foreknowledge of God is God setting his love upon his people from the foundations of the world. Where do we get this? We get it from the way the Bible uses this word, no. The word no in the Bible often does not refer merely to intellectual knowledge. It refers to relational knowledge. I can say, I know Michael Jordan. That's intellectual knowledge. I can say, I know Brian Thompson. Well, that's more than intellectual knowledge. I I have a relationship with Brian. And what the Reformed view says is that when, when verse 29 says, those whom God foreknew, it means those whom God foreknew, not just in an intellectual way, but in this relational way. Indeed, this word know is used throughout the Bible at many times to speak of intimate love. Certainly God knows intellectually every person in the world, but God knows in this relational way his people. Here's the evidence, some pieces of evidence. Jeremiah 1.5, God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you a prophet to the nations. So you tell me, what does God mean when he says to Jeremiah, before I formed you, before you were even conceived, I knew you. This is foreknowledge. Before you existed, before you were conceived, I knew you. Does this simply mean that God was cognitively aware of Jeremiah? Does it mean that God was looking into the future to see something about Jeremiah? No. Here's what God means. Jeremiah, before I even created you, I had a plan for you, and you were mine. Right? We were going to have and are going to have a relationship. I set my love on you, Jeremiah. I set you apart. You were special to me before you were even born. This is the meaning of that word, no. Adam knew Eve, and she bore a child. 
know refers to special relational love. Amos chapter 3 verse 2. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel. Amos 3 verse 2. Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. God, don't you know all the families of the earth? Don't you know every nation? Of course he does. So what is God saying? He's not simply saying that he's cognitively aware of of the nation of Israel. He knows all nations that way. He's not saying that he's looking into the future to see something that Israel's going to do. No, he's saying, I have known you. You are mine. You are special. You've been set apart. God chose Abraham when Abraham was still a worshiper of the moon god. God stepped into Abraham's life and promised to make him a great nation. Abraham loved God because God first loved Abraham. God had set his special love on Israel. When God says to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, it must mean that God had chosen to know Israel in a way that was different from every other nation. And that's what this word means. From the foundations of the earth, according to Romans 8.29, when it says those whom God foreknew, it's speaking of those people from whom the foundations of the earth, God made them his special people. He set them apart. They are the objects of his special love and mercy. Matthew 7, verse 22, Jesus says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never, what? Knew you. Jesus, you know everybody, right? What do you mean you didn't know us? You know everybody. No, he means You were never one that I had a special relationship with. You were never mine. I was never yours. I knew you intellectually, but we didn't have a relationship. We could go on. John 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. You see, we are known by God and by Christ the way God and Christ know each other. The same knowledge of Father and Son in the Trinity is the knowledge that God has of us. This is not sheer intellectual knowledge. This is love. This is not foresight about the future. This is love. Jesus knows his sheep and he lays down his life for them. To be known by God is to have his special Love. We could look at Romans eleven two. We could look at First Peter one two one twenty Psalm one six Hosea thirteen five. I think you get the point. The Bible helps us interpret the Bible, and the best way to understand Romans eight twenty nine is this: those whom God set His love upon from eternity past, these are the ones that He predestined, that He called, that He justified, and that He glorified. So to sum it up, John Murray says, know is used in a sense practically synonymous with love. Whom he foreknew is virtually equivalent to whom he foreloved. 
Foreknowledge is sovereign distinguishing love. Which means when you as a Christian read Romans 8.29, here's what you should read. All things are being worked by God for my good because from the beginning of time, he set his love on me. And because he set his love on me, he determined to bring me to heaven. And he called me to himself. And he gave me justifying faith to make sure that I make it to heaven. And guess what? If he foreknew me and he predestined me and he called me and he justified me, he is not going to let me slip away now. He is going to keep me safe and bring me to heaven. Does everybody understand how the argument works? Okay. So what is the implication of this? If you are a Christian, your God loved you before he even made you. He loved you when you were just an idea in his mind. If you are a Christian, God loved you with a special love. He loves everybody in the world. Yes, yes, yes. But there is a special saving love of God that was placed on you from the foundations of the world. And everything that he has done since day one in this world has been done with your God, with your good in mind. God has had you in his heart since the beginning of this redemption story. How can you be sure that all is working for your good? How can you be sure that you're going to be glorified on the last day, especially on Monday when it doesn't feel like God is working all for your good? Here's how you can know. Because you are one who has believed on Christ. And you would never have believed on Christ if you had not been called. And you would never have believed on Christ if you had not been predestined. And the fact that you have believed on Christ shows that you are one of the foreknown, the loved of God. And God will never lose any of his loved ones. Friends, this is only true for those who belong to Jesus Christ. And so if there are any here who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I would urge you to trust him so that this golden chain of salvation could be yours and so that you can have the great security taught in this wonderful passage. Let's pray.